Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do another podcast kind of in the interim before the NBA analysis is really ready because I like to give it two weeks and had a perfect guest in Sam Vecini. Sam is an NBA draft expert, and the timing was perfect because we get to talk about the college prospects and the European guys as well that are going to be notable in terms of the non-conference schedule, and so it's really setting up who to look for. And we do talk about these guys and talk about the college season with an NBA bent, so we focus on you know the top guys in the draft, who he feels is going to be most interesting. We largely group it by position, but we do bounce it around. And then towards the end, we talk a little bit about the NBA because Sam and I enjoy speaking with each other, and he had a couple of questions, a couple of things we wanted to discuss, so that's at the end. For those of you who enjoy timestamps, those should be available in the description. Hopefully they are. So, conversation runs a little bit over an hour and a half, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is sponsored by Audible. You can get a free audiobook and a free trial if you go to audible.com slash try now. Audible.com slash try now. Here's the conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, Danny, as always, I am uh, happy to come on and chat with you. You know, Danny and I talk all the time generally, but it's nice to be able to help Danny out as far as, uh, you know, getting paid for us talking instead of uh, just randomly like rambling on and uh, just, uh, you know, having a conversation between the two of us. We, we would like for this to be more focused than that, but you never really know. And where I thought this would be a good place to start is actually with something that you and I have talked about before, maybe even on the show, but I think it's a lot more clarified at the moment, which right. is the idea that this class is exciting because A, it's good, and B, because it's stacked at two positions that have broadly been underserved in the NBA in its totality, which are true primary ball handler point guards yep. and centers. Yep. But there's a big group that's a gigantic question mark in this draft. And actually, you could even say it's not a question mark, which is the wings in this class in general. There are exceptions, but the wings mm. in this class are horrible. They're pretty bad. Yeah. I, I mean, what people are basically hoping for on the wings right now. I mean, Josh Jackson's obviously incredible. OG Ananobi's fine. Uh, he's, you know, right now looking like a role player, I would say, that has like, you know, legitimate all NBA defensive potential, but he's still just going to be a role player nonetheless because his offensive game isn't all that developed yet. So what people are really hoping for are the guys that are overseas 
to really take that next step forward. Your Terrence Ferguson's, for instance, your Arnoldus Kolboka, who dropped 30 points this weekend in uh, Germany, and, you know, Rodion Crooks, who's hurt right now for Barcelona. Like, you're really hoping that those guys take your leap forward in this draft and, you know, actually become potential wings that can provide value. Because like you said, this draft is loaded at center and it's loaded at point guard. And I I would push back a little bit and say that I think center is becoming one of the stronger positions in the NBA right now, just given the youth at the position. We've really loaded that up over the course of the last few drafts. I mean, you look at what guys like Miles Turner and uh, obviously Carl Anthony Towns and Chris Stepps Porzingis and others have been able to add to that position recently. Uh, this, this draft's going to be more of the same. I mean, you look at what Harry Giles has the potential to do. You look at guys like, you know, Ivan Rabb, Bam Adebayo, Jared Allen, Marcus Bolden, uh, Lowry Markinen. Like there are a lot of guys that are going to add just further depth to that big position. But point guards is the big one that I think we're all excited about. Yeah, I guess the way that I want to articulate that is that both center, like if especially if we're talking rim protection and primary ball handler are things that you need 48 good minutes out. Like there are other, other elements, yeah. you know, you can, you can do it more piecemeal, but like you can have different kinds of wings and succeed. You know, teams mm-hmm. are trying that out now. Oklahoma city apparently is trying out something very different with their wings, with the trade that just got announced. And so it's like, you can do that, but really it's hard to succeed without a primary ball handler. It's hard to succeed without that kind of defense of anchor center. And so you're right that there are more of them in the league, but to get to the threshold of 48 minutes, especially as guys age out, even if they're aging out more slowly, like you can with point guards, you can talk about George Hill, maybe Chris Paul eventually will give away to father time, you know, like those types of players will Tony Parker basically already has. So, you know, you kind of need to fill up those ranks. And even if it starts out at being kind of like the bottom end of that 48, it's welcome because guys are aging a little bit better. And with point guards, it takes a little while. So even if they go start in smaller roles, that gives them time to prepare. Yeah. So like in terms of point guards, who is there that you're excited about that has been drafted in like the last three drafts? I mean, I I guess if you call D'Angelo Russell a point guard, uh, he would be one. I'm sorry. Moutier. Yeah. I mean, Moutier had a really rough rookie year, but I'm still relatively excited about him. The year before was Exum and Smart and Alfred Payton in the top 10. Uh, I'm not super high on Payton and never have been. You know, Smart is turning into more of an off guard, it seems like. And Exum, they're playing it off guard right now as well, but that's more due to circumstance, obviously. And then 2013, I mean, you look back and uh, I guess Dennis Schroeder is probably the best point guard in that class. And he just got like a medium sized extension to stay in Atlanta for a little while. But it's really been weak in terms of the young talent that has entered at the point guard position over the course of the last three to four years. And you know, this draft's really going to replenish that, I think. You look at guys like Dennis Smith, and you look at guys like Markel Fultz, Lonzo Ball, everyone else, De'Aaron Fox, Frank Tilakina. Like, th- these guys are all going to add a lot to that position and really replenish the youth in the way that the center position has been replenished over the last few years. You also run into the thing, it's part of the reason why, I, I've, I haven't written the piece, I pitched it to a couple different outlets and will write it at some point about why I make the distinction between point guards and primary ball handlers, is that we're seeing yeah. this group of guys like maybe Deontay Exum, maybe Marcus Smart, who, you know, they're, they're all, those guys also happen to be more versatile defensively, but you know, maybe their best thing isn't running an offense, whereas somebody like Giannis is. 
You know, so like that's kind of part of the reason why I like framing it that way. Also, Ben Simmons, you know, like Ben Simmons probably will be running an offense at some point in the next couple of years. I, I would hope so. And so we're seeing a little bit of that. But those players are always going to be the anomaly. I mean, you don't say, oh, you know, 10 teams, they're going to be able to play, you know, more of an off ball one. There will be a couple. James Harden still exists. LeBron James still exists. But it's not going to ever be like a, a majority. And if I if that ever changed, I'd be super happy. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. You're seeing like kind of uh, these bigger players who can't shoot but can really pass and handle the ball. Instead of being like roped into becoming like these high post forwards or you know, quote unquote point forwards, they've been kind of roped into being lead ball handlers now. And that's so fascinating to me. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense because it really helps your spacing. Like you can do so much more in terms of spacing the floor if you have Ben Simmons handling the ball down the floor instead of him having a guy just sag off of him in the corner and create more resistance at the rim or in the lane. So it's a really interesting idea that these bigger players can become primary ball handlers. But ultimately, you're right. Like you still are likely going to have your point guard handling the ball as your primary ball handler. There are going to be some guys that are going to be you know, off ball ones, but it's going to be rare. Like you said, it's going to be a situation where you want most of your guys to be on ball point guards who can both create off the dribble, shoot and defend. I think those are the three things that everyone's looking for right now. And if you look around the league as well right now, and I think that this is part of the thing that goes into the fact that we haven't seen all that many great young point guards recently enter the league. There really aren't that many good backup point guards in the NBA that I look at. Like it's such an advantage to have a really competent backup point guard. Like you look at the advantage the Warriors get when they can throw Sean Livingston there and he's versatile defensively and can do a lot of different stuff. But like there are maybe 10 teams in the league right now that have a guy that they can really trust to handle the load offensively. Uh, as a backup point guard. And that's just so valuable right now. So I think this draft's going to replenish that regard too. Something else that those kind of bigger primaries can do is they, they create a different selection for like we talked a little bit about off ball ones, just because there are more small guys who have that skill set. You know, like if you want to say Jared Bayless, you know, he's a guy that I think of, or even, you know, like Monte Ellis would be better as an off ball one. And what having those guys in the league, you know, it can create a viability, but really the ideal for guys fitting with that is is more of a combination one and you could call the archetype i I think the best the archetype for it is Kyrie irving because Kyrie irving is probably a little bit overrated as a primary ball handler Mm -hmm. but is maybe a little bit underrated as an offensive force like he's a guy who can create his own shot but from what i've seen watching his whole career including when he was a duke and everything he does really well when, when he doesn't have to run everything through him because he has lebron to manage a lot of stuff lebron's court vision's insane and then Kyrie can do Kyrie stuff and so you don't really necessarily seek for that because it's a hard thing to look for but it creates more value in those players where if you're pigeonholing them in the old kind of positional groupings they could have been hurt by that yeah it's really interesting like positional groupings to me still matter on the defensive end but it's kind of going away right like in terms of you more just need to find a way to gather skill sets and Two-way players are the easiest things to build around, obviously. Like you want guys who can you can trust on both ends to really be effective because it allows you a lot more utility in terms of building around those guys. If you have a guy like a Danny Green, you can put a ball handling two and a, you know, 
spot up one or something next to him and be fine. Or you could put, you know, a slashing one who isn't very good defensively next to him, or you could put a lot of different types of players next to a guy like that. So the fact that these bigger point guards, most of them provide a lot more positional versatility and positional utility right now. Like you look at a guy like Edmund Sumner, Xavier, Xavier played him at the two a lot last year because of Miles Davis being there. And he was guarding one through three last year. He's a six foot six point guard who's a freak athlete like guys like him are going to be able to provide a ton of value uh, going forward in the NBA just because they allow so many teams to do different things with their lineups and different things in terms of roster construction and I think that that's the most important part of finding a potential player you need to find a versatile guy who has a lot of utility uh, to move up and down the lineup or you just need to find like a total freak like a Kyrie Irving which is not easy to find given the fact that he went number one overall it also might be part of the answer to the question of how how do we fill the wing spots is just having more Maybe. more guys who have pointers like Markel Fultz at last I saw he was like legit 6'4", you know, has a long, I think he has like a 6'10 wingspan. So like, yeah, maybe, maybe you play Markel Fultz with a, a, a guy who maybe shouldn't have the ball in his hands as much, but can defend ones and you bounce those guys around a little bit. Also, if you can make it work defensively and, you know, the on off ball dynamic is maintained, I love being able to play two point guards because the ability to, the ability to create when another team takes away your primary option is a massive tactical advantage. I mean, that's something mm-hmm. that not only I, our team's kind of still figuring out, but do you, you know who really does the- that effectively in the NBA? I was thinking Cleveland, but I think you probably have a better example. I think Dallas really does it effectively yes. in the NBA. Dallas well, and, and, and Carlisle particularly doing it does it with their units. bench. Yeah. And for second units, I think almost every team should be playing two point guards because the defensive consequences are a lot less impactful. You know, like it, it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't, there aren't that many guys that are just going to smoke a second unit point guard because if they did, they'd be starting. Yeah, I think the problem is there. I think there's just kind of a, you know, relative dip in point guard talent uh, off the bench right now. Just sure. as I kind of mentioned, but ideally, I think that's where the league is going. And if we can find more point guards like a like like the guy in this draft that I look at that's perfect for this is Monty Morris. If you could play Monty Morris in like a bigger one combo guard kind of thing, that would be awesome for your second unit. You would be able to just kind of stem the tide defense uh, or uh, offensively, I mean, with both those guys on the floor. And it wouldn't be nearly as bad whenever you're worrying about, uh, okay, is this unit really going to be able to score me enough points? Like, do I have to stagger my minutes and make my line, my best lineups be on the floor less often together? Like guys like that who can both pass and shoot off the dribble are so valuable. It's why I love Tyler Eulis in this draft too. He's a guy who can both pass and he can really shoot off the dribble. Now he has the size question and how his shot is affected by that size is going to be a really interesting facet. But just the kind of ideal of a player who can both really, really pass, really create, and really shoot. Those guys are in small numbers, but when you have them, they're so valuable. And if you can get two of them on the floor, it's just even better. And for teams that can have it with two younger guys, like let's say for whatever reason they have draft picks and a point guard happens to be the best guy available again. The team that's like that right now is Memphis. Yeah. 
Memphis is like that. I you when they are fully healthy, Boston could do it because they, they yep. could play smart. They could play smart and Rozier together. Another reason that you do that is because point guard, as we've talked about already, is such an important position. Having primary ball handlers, it gives you more bites at the apple while still giving everyone playing time. I mean, it's imperfect. You know, I'm sure a lot of guys would love to prove that they can be the guy, but at least they're getting a, a, a consistent opportunity. And it also would help if more of those guys could shoot. Because there is often this issue of those second point guards not really being that, and so it can compound. For instance, they can compound each other's problems sometimes. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you know, a lot of second unit guys can't shoot, and a lot of second unit guys who can shoot can't do other stuff. So you have to strike a balance with all of these sorts of things, and it's exciting because you know if we get more depth at that spot. Basically, my premise with this, and and I, I think we're in the same boat, is basically. You should never turn down drafting a point guard if you think they're good enough because you have other guys. You should just take them because there yeah. is a, there's always a net benefit. And as we learned from Ish Smith, if the guy can play, there's always a trade market for it. I mean, look at what happened to Brooklyn last year. Brooklyn completely fell apart. I mean, they had other talent deficiencies too, but if they had had competent point guard play, Philly last year, if Philly had had competent point guard play, they would have been a whole heck of a lot more watchable and they also mm-hmm. would have been a lot better. So I think to a point, I agree with you. To me in the top like 15 to 18 picks, I do want to take a wing if he's available. Like I will take a more projecty wing than like a less questionable point guard, I guess. Just because if you hit on that wing, that wing is just going to be such an incredibly valuable player for you. That's um, a really good point. At that like lottery level. Like OG Ananobi, it's why OG Ananobi is so valued right now, even though he's a 19 year old that averaged five points a game last year. He's nowhere near as complete or ready to play as Grayson Allen or Monte Morris. But the fact that he's a six foot eight wing with a seven foot two wingspan who can legitimately guard like one through four right now. Um, if you can get any offense from that guy, it's just worth biting the bullet and taking a chance to develop him. you know? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a fair point. And I don't know why I'm making this connection, but I was just thinking about also how the growing surge, both in players that are already in the league and guys that are coming in, of big men, especially centers who can shoot, also opens the door for more of these wings that have that as a deficiency. I mean, it doesn't justify it. You always, more shooting is almost always better. Right. But it's a lot easier to deal with that. Let's say somebody like Andre Robertson, if you have Carl Anthony Towns at center, as opposed to more of like, a, let's say, an Andrew Bogut or even a Steven Adams type, just because you can get that spacing another way. Right. This is like kind of a saving grace for a guy like Rondé Hollis Jefferson right now. Or MKG. Yeah, he's like, for instance, Hollis Jefferson is playing in that like hyper three point heavy offense in Brooklyn right now. But he's so helped by having guys like Justin Hamilton and Brooke Lopez who can step away and shoot. And even Luis Scola can shoot out to 18 feet now. And they've just given him the green light to go from three even. So like getting guys who are going to space the floor like that and the defense has to guard out at the three-point line, it makes a guy like Rondé Hollis-Jefferson who can break down a defense a little bit but still really can't shoot and is incredibly defensively valuable, makes those guys just a little bit more valuable. It's why, for instance, though, you were just going to mention Oklahoma City with a guy like Andre Robertson, uh, if he had a guy like Carl Anthony Towns, there was just that trade earlier, like an hour before we started recording with Jeremy Grant going to Oklahoma City. I don't really like Grant's fit in Oklahoma City because that team has no spacing and he's going to be counted on still to 
try and provide something in that capacity. I mean, I, I don't know who they're going to get it from. I think they're hoping that Demonis Sabonis can consistently hit corner threes and that Cantor will continue to shoot at a torrid pace. And these wings, though, they don't really knock down shots. And your point guard in Russell Westbrook doesn't really knock down shots. So it, it's a really difficult fit for a guy like Grant, whereas if he would have gone to, oh, I mean, maybe Indiana right now, and you could play in between Paul George and Miles Turner, it would make a lot more sense. I personally am intrigued by the fit specifically of Grant at the four and Canner at the five, just with the idea that Canner has more of the outside game at moments mm-hmm. than Grant does. You still run into problems, but again, second units, I think they can do relatively well. But you still, when you're Oklahoma City, you're not good enough at your starting spots to be like, oh yeah, we can you know give up even if it's a heavily protected first round pick for a guy who we see as a second unit guy. You know, like that that's not the way this usually happens. And so I think they're going to try it out and to kind of hinge this to, to pivot it to the 2017 class it seems to me like having getting back into this into the high school kid game which has been fun just to watch these guys when they're a little bit younger i've been impressed with how some of these younger bigs are shooting but it appears to me that that's more of a 2018 thing than a 2017 thing trying to decide if i agree with that in terms of shooting bigs in 2017 because well, like bam can't shoot right yeah, Bam can't really shoot. Jonathan Isaac's like six eleven. He can shoot a little. Well, bit. he's a he's a four. I mean, I I, lo- yeah. I really like Jonathan Isaac. I think the floor spacing four like Markinen's probably along similar lines. I mean, I don't see Markinen as five from what I've seen. Mm, he might be in the he might be a five in the same way that Kaminsky's a five. You know, like you have to play him with in that he's not a four. <laughs> Right. And that he's not really a four, but kind of not really a five. You just need to play him with the right guys. But you're, you're right. I think that that's probably pretty fair. I mean, these true big men, maybe Thomas Bryant, although I think his shot is just beyond hideous. But how is Bolden? I don't I don't know him super well. Bolden has really nice touch around the rim and you can kind of see him maybe developing it at some point, but it's not there yet. Um, same with Jared Allen. Jared Allen probably has a little bit less touch than Bolden does around the rim. Markinen can obviously shoot. Uh, Jonathan John, from what I've seen, isn't really a shooter. Jesse Govan at Georgetown's a guy that Draft Express has relatively high. He can shoot a little bit, but outside of that, I mean, you're not talking about too many guys in this draft that can really shoot. But like you said, the 2018 kids, DeAndre Ayton, for instance, Wendell Carter a little bit, these guys can all shoot and they're all really interesting because of the fact that they can shoot. It's it's exciting that there are at least some of those because that adds so much creative flexibility. And then it'll, it'll be a little bit of a downer just because I know we both really like him, but there is also the uncertainty with Harry Giles now. Yeah, I mean, it's really disappointing because like I've said many times, I think Harry Giles is like if he was fully healthy and had no knee concerns, he's a prospect that is probably just like one slight level below Anthony Davis in terms of talent. Just the way he runs the floor, he's incredibly productive, rebounds, has like a nine foot three standing reach, pretty much everything you want out of a you know power forward center. He can do and he has the potential to develop a jump shot and really create off the dribble like he could average 20 points 12 rebounds five blocks a game this year uh if he plays and it wouldn't matter like all that's gonna matter is how he tests uh whenever they check his knees and everything yeah it's really disappointing he's the kind of guy that is 
probably a like franchise talent if he was healthy and you know maybe he can still get there but i don't want to say it's not looking good because we just don't know like it's just a totally uncertain situation two years ago i said that dante exum was the prospect who would get a gm fired basically the idea being either the one who drafted (laughs) him or one of the ones who passed on him and giles might be the same you know with the idea just that he's so talented but there's so much uncertainty that People are going to be sitting there one way or the other being like, how did we pass on this guy? Or, oh, man, look at the risk, unless he falls a little bit too far, which, you know, arguably happened a little bit with Exum, the guy who I had, I think, number one or number two in that class. But the cool thing is, though, with Giles, like teams should know by the time the draft goes around, like. Yeah, that's that's the hope, especially now. Like it's it's such an it's not even like Embiid, let's say, where it's coming more out of nowhere in the sense like I guess with Embiid, he was hurt. But just like the scale of it and everything like that, like it's always yeah, it was like a back injury midseason. And then during workouts, he broke that bone in his foot and right. no one like knew what to do with it. Yeah. And so then you had the weird thing about, oh, where do you take a guy if he's going to be out? And especially when it's an injury. Well, and I would say the knee is kind of in a way a parallel with with Embiid's foot in the sense that it's not something like an ACL terror where teams can just be like, oh, you know, that means he's going to lose. It's basically a redshirt year. The parallel is maybe more to something like Kevon Looney, where, yeah, there might be a redshirt year, but also you don't know how long this is going to persist. Well, like on one hand, yeah, like with Giles, it is ACL tears. I mean, it's he's torn both of his knees now and he's having this like little cleanup with I think it's his meniscus, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Like on one hand, it is that. But on the other hand, you really have to check to see if there's structural damage in those knees. And I mean, there were guys in this draft who were red flagged due to structural damage. So, I mean, I don't want to say it's like medical Russian roulette, but like for some guys, it really is like you're either going to get cleared or you're not going to get cleared. And if you're red flagged, like that's one of the most terrifying things that you can be uh, for an NBA front office. But fortunately, he still has enough talent that it's not like he's going to fall off the board entirely, you know, and sometimes that kind of like if he gets a little bit of a fall, which, you know, is a possibility can put you into a good situation because then it's a team that can be patient with you. They can put you in the right spot. Yeah, for sure. For instance, like if you're trying to tell me like you would rather have Ivan Rab than Harry Giles, even with the uncertainty. Yeah, like I would still just take the shot on Harry Giles like at number nine rather than Ivan Rab because... I just trust the athletic, the athletic like upside, and uh, I trust the production a little bit more. I mean, Rab's going to get a real chance to take that next step forward at Cal this year, but we've seen what he is. He's you know a highly polished, highly skilled player, but you know he's a limited athlete who is really long and probably resigned to playing the center long term. If you made me say, whereas Giles, like I think you can kind of play him wherever and he'll be fine. There's also the fundamental truth that a player who has even a a small but non-negligible chance of being a superstar, that that value trumps so many other things because it is so hard, especially if you're in anything other than a significant market, to get one of those guys. So if you can, you know, let's say it's a one in 20 chance that Harry Giles reaches that potential and becomes, let's say, an all NBA guy. Like, let's say that's the level. Well, you know, I would take that one in 20 chance over a guy like, let's say you think of Rab as I do as being probably more likely to be a backup than a starter. That's not like a death sentence or anything. We need right. we need depth bigs in the league. But He's I would like take a second, that one, third big. I would take that one in 20 
and let's even if it was like a, a a five or ten and twenty chance that he's not usable in three years, I would take that chance every day of the week. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people in NBA front offices agree with you, and I think that a lot of it just depends on where you are organizationally too. Like, if you're Sacramento, do you really want to take that chance? Uh, if you're <laughs> like, do, do you do you really want to, you know, just take the chance of well let's be honest sacramento would i'm trying to think of the most absurd like foreign big man no, i can it, think of in this draft they would take like sasha vizankov at like 12 so who knows well, depending we don't know how how their relationship with vlade is but <laughs> it also gets like it gets into a kind of a lot of a lot of different things at the same time just in terms of your approach to team building and if the rookie scale goes up you know maybe that calculus changes a little bit as it looks like yeah. it will just because you know right now rookie scale contracts are so cheap that missing is is just it's not that kind of a downside i mean you're it's the opportunity cost of oh you could have picked somebody else but mm-hmm. other than that you know it's not a big financial burden or, or or anything of that nature the other thing i wanted to mention and you can probably speak to this better than I can because my interactions have been limited. But from what I have heard and from my very limited direct interactions, it also seems like Giles is a really good kid. And when that happens, it makes it easier to take that sort of a risk because not only do injury recoveries take a lot of character, but those are guys that are easier to bet on. Yeah, no, that's right from all indications. Um, You know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an expert on Harry Giles. I mean, I've I think I spoke to him once at Hoop Summit this year, and that's it. So, like, I'm not going to pretend to like know him personally or anything. I, I'm not going to not going to Stephen A. Smith you here and say that I am a very close personal friend of uh, Harry Giles. But from all indications uh, from people in the NBA that I've talked to, they think he's a really good kid. They think that he's a really hard worker, and that it's likely he will get back. It's just going to depend on the structural damage of the knee if there is any. So, all of that is very terrifying. But I really do wish the best. For Giles because like I said this kid is a stud he's not necessarily like what Carl Anthony Towns has turned into at the NBA level even though I mean we saw flashes of it in college as well but he is a really good athlete who can do a lot of really interesting things especially in a downsized NBA I want to take a quick moment to tell you about the sponsor of this show Audible Okay, so let's talk briefly just because we've already been on the center kick. I'm going to go through some guys, and I think the best way to do this might be kind of what you think of as their kind of their niche right now, if you had to guess in terms of the NBA. And so let, let's start with, with Bolden. Do you see him more as like maybe being like a, a starter or a backup? And then kind of like, what does he do well enough that a team will be sold on that? So yeah, I'm a little bit less in on Bolden than a lot of people are. He's really young still. He's like, I want to say like... 18 years old, not even like close to turning 19. Like I think he's like a solid 18. The problem with him that I have is, is yeah, he has like that huge nine, five standing reach and like huge wingspan, six eleven, uh, really good touch around the rim. I, I just don't know what he does in terms of playing in the modern NBA beyond post up and like, you know, face up from 10 feet and in, right? Like he's a big body dude at 250 pounds. He, doesn't move super well laterally. He isn't super explosive vertically. Like, like oh, maybe it's just me being 
abjectly terrified by what I've seen of Jaleel Okafor. Bolden, I don't want to say he's like a lesser version of Okafor because I think he does some things a little bit better and he's a little bit bigger in terms of standing reach and everything. But there's some of that there that worries me in terms of him becoming like an efficient offensive player. If he can become a legitimate defender and rim protector, uh, that'll be one thing and it'll totally change his stock in my mind. And uh, he has shown some potential inside in terms of being able to protect the rim. But that's kind of one of those things you really have to see in the college level whenever you're not an elite athlete to really be able to judge. So I have him at like 20 on my board right now. He's not a lottery prospect to me at this, at this stage, but uh, he certainly has the potential to get there. I'm not sure that he will this year, just because you look at what Duke has probably going to play Tatum at the four a decent amount. They still have Emil Jefferson. There's obviously the Harry Giles thing. Um, Duke has a lot of talent in the front court. And I just wonder if he's going to get more than like, you know, 15 minutes a game to show it. That's all. That all seems fair. Uh, let's go to Bam Adebayo. Yeah, Bam is a really interesting guy. He's a guy that I had in the top 10 whenever I released my big board earlier this month. Really good athlete at six foot 10, 250 pounds, like has like a 40 inch vertical leap. Can do some interesting stuff in the pick and roll. Uh, moves really well laterally, uh, explosive vertically. He's kind of uh, in that like Tristan Thompson, he like kind of between the power forward and center positions. I don't think he's a good enough shooter to really play the four, but He's a really, really explosive athlete who I think you could throw him at the five and just kind of let him go. I don't want to say that he has this kind of upside necessarily because I'm not sure he does, but there's some Amari Stoudemire e things there. But hmm. the couple of things that scare me are that he has short arms. He has a seven one wingspan and he has pretty small hands like he does occasionally. You'll see him like kind of fumble passes occasionally, and he has like a little bit lesser of a catch radius than you would like to see out of those guys that are going to be like heavy roll big men with the potential to shoot to like 15 feet and really like kind of work wonders in the pick and roll and play center uh, is like a smaller center. But there's a lot to like still have him as like a top 10 prospect in this draft, uh, but we're going to see what he can do at Kentucky this year. And it's always scary with those kind of guys when they're making the transition to NBA players who are so much bigger and stronger. You know, like you're, it's, it it's, very, it's very different to grab a rebound in high school or in college than it is in the NBA. Yeah. And I mean, that's like one thing where hand size comes in and it's one thing where just, you know, physical explosiveness and length comes in. Like Bam has the physical length and power or it doesn't have the length. He has the physical explosiveness and power. But you do have to hope that, you know, there are guys like Amari and there are guys like Cliff Alexander. Like some guys are just legitimate freaks who make the transition and other guys like Cliff don't. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch Bam this year. I think he has a good year, though. Jared Allen. Yeah, Jared Allen is kind of your prototypical like pick and roll big man, low usage, who will also protect the rim, right? So he's Tyson Chandler-y, I guess, but not necessarily with the same athletic explosiveness. What Allen does really well is he has really good feet. He has really good hands. He finishes well above the rim. Uh, he's like a 7'5 wingspan, a little bit less of a standing reach than Bolden, but I still think it's right around like the 9'2", 9'3 range. Really good timing in terms of blocking shots defensively as well. So again, you're looking at like your prototypical low usage offensively, potential like rim protector that you build around defensively. My instinct with Allen having seen him a few times is that he fits this niche and if he could be better or worse than this of a guy who, if he's your starter, 
you know, you're not, you're happy. He's not like at that bottom level where you're, where the fan base is just angry all the time, Mm -hmm. but you're always kind of sitting there being like, oh, well, what if we could get this guy? What if we could get that guy? And while that sounds like a criticism, there are a lot of guys who that would be a great career for, you know, like that, 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 it's kind of like what's happening with Mason Plumley right now. Exactly. You know, like Mason Plumley is about to get paid. I, I think Cody Zeller probably fits this too. Yeah. You know, like guys who, you know, they're, they're, and, and they're getting paid, you know, more than $10 million a year. And what I like about Allen in that role is that if he can be a reliable defensive player, that is a, a much better backstop for that sort of value. Because if you can do that, someone will pay you to play 18 to 20 minutes a game no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Last guy, at least in the kind of the lottery area, we talked about him a little bit before, but Ivan Rapp. Yeah, Rab's another Jared Allen-y kind of guy, except a little bit smaller. So Rab is hyper polished offensively, has really good feet, moves as well, moves his feet well in the pick and roll, has good footwork in the post, uh, really good touch in the post, has potential to step back and shoot like 15 to 18 feet, I think. Um, not the most explosive athlete, though. He's good length, uh, 6'11", with like a 7'2", 7'3", wingspan, I believe. Um, it's just a really solid, polished player that will probably be like a solid second to third big man in the NBA. He has good instincts, which is great. You know, he uh, watching Cal a fair amount last year, like I was impressed with sometimes he would just read a play exactly right. But at the NBA level, that's not enough. You have to be either athletic or, you know, you need to be like preternaturally instinctual. Like I'm thinking of Paul Millsap, like maybe for Millsap, it's instinct plus effort, I guess is probably the calcul is the calculation for him. And so that might be hard for him. But again, if it's, if he's more in the second, third big man spot, that's not as big a problem. Yeah. He's like basically the same age as Josh Jackson too, I believe. Like he's super young for his age. Which is funny because we're not going to say that about Josh Jackson. But yeah, because because Josh Jackson is a freshman and Rab already played one year of college basketball. Yeah. So a- any other centers kind of in that top echelon? I mean, because I think the next group is probably like more like Thomas Bryant, Jonathan John. Like they're they're kind of a different tier. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you think of Lowry Markinen, But uh, I mean, he probably should be thrown into like this power forward center tier like the. Okay combo e four and a half to five kind of guys marketing is uh, just incredibly polished he's great touch around the rim great touch out to the three-point line really a lot tougher than i think people know right now um whenever i watched him in the euros like he was a guy who had no problem dealing with physicality that's not going to be an issue at all for him uh entering the ncaa this season this kid's tough he's super skilled uh there's obviously the defensive questions he's not like an elite athlete explosively and he has like relatively short arms but he's a true seven footer that can really shoot and really score baskets and you know guys like he uh guys like frank kaminsky uh who can you know rip a rebound and bring the ball down the floor and continue to get the defense off guard those guys have value and i think markinen's going to continue to have value if he can credibly play the five even for 10 minutes a game it's such a huge tactical advantage i mean the parallel might be somebody like john lure where you know lure you probably wouldn't want him starting at the at the five but you can give him a couple minutes there and it's not going to kill your team and then that gives you so much offensive flexibility and his ability to grab and go is wonderful too and you mm-hmm. create more advantages putting him at the five even if it's for short stretches and when you can do that with a player also assuming he doesn't reach that clear-cut starter level which you know we'll, we'll see but if you get a lot more creative kind of flexibility with a guy like that and so you can you know you can bounce him around you can have different big man combinations and you can make it work 
Yeah, no, everything you just said is 100% what I believe as well. Anytime that you can get a, a guy who can rip and run, uh, we were talking before we got on the call about how we think Kevon Looney, if he can play legitimate minutes for the Warriors, uh, could be just an incredibly valuable asset because he could really help their rebounding. And he's another guy on their floor that can just rip the ball and run down the floor and, uh, you know, give the defense less time to uh, adjust to what's happening uh, on the break and keep them scrambling. So those guys have awesome value. And I would say that Markinen probably has a little bit more skill than that because he can really step away and shoot and he can create off the dribble uh, from like 15 to 18 feet. But those are the kind of guys that I really like in the forward line. Yeah, it's it's a, a nice advantage to have. And again, it's kind of like another way of getting a backstop like I talked about with Jared Allen. Like if you can bring that skill level, teams will find a way to play you. Yep. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the point guards. You and I, the last time we did one of these for Real Gym Radio, it's largely the same dudes, so it's not that much of a change. But yeah. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll start it with open to you. I know that you have a personal preference. How would you? So I, I think the top group is probably Fultz Smith and Tilkitna. Would you throw De'Aaron Fox in there? I would probably say that I think Fultz and Smith are the top two. Is the top tier, and then Tilkitna is below them. Yeah, Tilakina a little bit below them with De'Aaron Fox and Lonzo Ball. And I think, honestly, like Lonzo Ball is the guy that very few people know what to do with right now because, you know, he was the Gatorade National Player of the Year and he played in that goofy offense both in AAU and at Chino Hills that made it really difficult to kind of scout the way that he would play. But he's really improved his body over the course of the last, like, I would say, year since I saw him at a Adidas in the summer in 2015 um, really improved his body looks a lot stronger he's six foot six like 190 pounds with like a six eight wingspan that's a huge point guard that you can legitimately move up and down the lineup if he continues to put on some weight while retaining the quickness that he has the question is is the jump shot going to translate in any capacity is the he's not a limited athlete but he's an average athlete i would say at the point guard position is that going to play well up and down the lineup um if it does he is a legitimate top five talent if it doesn't uh like we've seen so far uh ucla went on to an australia trip and he didn't play well there against you know bigger guys while he was still adjusting if it doesn't play well you just don't know what to do with that guy but he's the kind of guy who will play in the nba just because he works really hard and he has defensive value um it's just whether or not he's going to be able to bring like the all-star offensive value that is incredibly his ceiling Lonzo might be the most counterintuitive example of a trait that I value, which is I call reciprocal versatility. So basically the idea is that when you have a guy who's really versatile on the positive end, like the easiest way to think about this is defensively. Like let's say Kawhi Leonard, like Kawhi Leonard can guard two, three, four at an elite level. So that is a great skill, but it is only, it is magnified by having players around them that even if they're doing it against the inferior players can do the same. And with Lonzo Ball, if if you're thinking of him as a starter, part of his value is the idea that you can stash him on the other team's three if that three is not the threat. If it, if their two is the threat, then then you can put your Kawhi Leonard on him and then you can put Lonzo, you know, at the other spot. And while it's not usually thought of as being this like real value piece, I think it's underappreciated because you get into certain spots where you pen yourself in a corner. Centers are the most obvious. Power forwards are the most obvious with this. But you can even think about somebody like James Harden. I mean, we're going to find out this year how he defends ones. But the more versatility you have defensively, even if you're not good defensively, the more flexibility your team has to use to use you and the other guys. 
I would even take this a step further because you look at a guy like Lonzo Ball, who, you know, high school players are extremely difficult to judge defensively. But one thing that Ball really does well is he gets into passing lanes and really creates odd man rushes all the time. So if you can find a way to stash him on a lesser player, it would allow him to gamble more often on defense and it could create more turnovers for your team. And that's just an incredibly valuable proposition uh, to be able to just stash this guy who's six foot six with long arms and incredible anticipation for passes onto a guy that, you know, may or may not be all that valuable offensively. So that's just an added benefit, particularly as it pertains to ball and as it pertains to some of the other guys that we're talking about. And, He's a different breed than like, let's say Gerald Green, who is a guy who's athletically gifted. And my theory with those kind of guys, J.R. Smith is in this camp too. Dion Waiters actually really thrived in this. So it was kind of, it solidified my feeling is that there's also a group of guys that can really benefit from giving them a specific assignment and then giving them very little help responsibility because yeah. you're asking them to do something very simple. And especially if they're doing it off ball, because with Lonzo, like, you know, yeah, if, if you're, if you're guarding the ball handler, you're going to get caught on screens. You're going to do a lot of stuff because offensive action actions for better or for worse are almost always built on the guy with the ball in their hands. And so if you can, the further you get him away from the primary action, if he has the flaws that we expect, those become less relevant. Yeah, they do. It's funny that you mentioned Dion Waiters because Dion Waiters is so terrible like staying with people off the ball in terms of like fighting through screens and stuff. But then when you put him on the ball, whenever like his guy gets the ball, he locks in as like an awesome defender one-on-one. It's Did you see him shut down thing. Aaron Gordon? No, but that sounds amazing. like something no, so, he can do. So they were the, I think it was the first day. I think it was the first full day of the season. The magic were playing the heat. Like, so they were trying the whole Aaron Gordon at the three experiment. And so there were a couple of times where he got, you know, ISO'd onto Dion Waiters and Waiters didn't give him an inch. Yep. And Waiters is also strong for his size and all that kind of stuff. And it also re- kept on reiterating to me why Aaron Gordon's a four, not a three. Yeah. But a lot of players are, are not bad defenders at the things they're uh, at the things that they're solid at. It's just that when they get put in those kind of situations, I mean, another example of this was that the Spurs never made it as counter defend in space. You know, like there are a lot of guys who are all right at some forms of defense, great at others, bad at others. And like Harden is another example of of this, just in terms of he, I found him getting, he gets lost less when he's on the ball, but Mm -hmm. he gets, sometimes he also just gets blown by in the worst possible way. I mean, there were some times in both series they played against the Warriors the last couple of years where you just, you see something just incomprehensibly bad from him defensively. Yeah. I mean, with Harden, the ideal place to put him is like, if you have like a, combo three four that posts a lot like that that's who you want Harden on because he's so strong in his lower body and through his chest that he can kind of deal with it like putting him on a guy like Andrew Wiggins feels like a pretty good idea to me even or though Shabazz Wiggins, Muhammad yeah Shabazz Muhammad's the ideal one but like I was trying to think of like a starting quality one like Andrew Wiggins is a freak athletically who if you get him in space against Harden might be able to blow by him but he's most effective right now in that like low to mid post posting smaller guys. Harden can deal with that really well. So like those are the guys that average 20 points a game that Harden can succeed against. It's when you put him against, you know, Patty Mills that he's going to just get annihilated. Yeah. I mean, he, he just has those kind of, those kind of matchups that just give him, that give him trouble. Uh, so let's get back to the point guards. Let's start at the top. Fultz and Smith are one and two, and they both 
I, I mean, they're both insanely talented, but are also not completely proven commodities in terms of running a, let's even say a college level, much less an NBA level offense. Yeah, I mean, they're both going to be freshmen this year. Fultz is going to be, I don't want to say he's going to be on an island because there are actually some guys on Washington that I kind of like, like Matisse Thibel is really interesting. And, uh, you know, Noah Dickerson, Malik Dime, like those guys have value in the college game. But, you know, he's going to be responsible for creating just about all of their offense. So that's going to be really interesting to watch. Like he might average like 20 points a game with ease this year. Dennis Smith, on the other hand, is going to be more of a... You know, he's going to get his own baskets because he's just that kind of athlete and he has that kind of mentality, but you're going to see him distribute a little bit more than I think you'll see Fultz distribute because he is really good in the pick and roll. There are going to be guys who get open. You have guys like Torin Dorn and, you know, Omer Yurtsevin, who was declared eligible after a nine game suspension this year. That team has a little bit more talent. Like they are probably a top 25 team in the country, I think, talent wise. So like Smith is probably going to play that role a little bit more. And if he does it well, I think it would really help him. And he continues to show that he is past that knee injury and everything. It could go really, really well toward him becoming, uh, you know, potential number one overall pick, even depending on who gets the number one overall spot. Not that I think it's definite that they will have one of the top three picks, but do either, from what we know right now, do you think either Fultz or Smith fits in particularly well with D'Angelo Russell on the Lakers? Hmm, that's a really interesting call because Fultz has like a very similar game to D'Angelo. The the problem that the Lakers have to figure out with Russell is how much do you want to play him on ball versus off ball? Like, do you want him as your primary ball handler or do you want him as a guy who, you know, handles the ball, but also runs off of screens and does some stuff in terms of guys that I like fitting with D'Angelo. I mean, Smith is probably a better fit with Russell just because he is a little bit more of a true facilitator. Fultz has kind of a very similar game to Russell, I think, even though they are different in some ways. They're both very creative big guards, though, uh, that you know, can shoot a little bit, but are also adept passers and uh, can do a lot from the off guard spot. You know, that's a really difficult question that I don't know how to answer. I'm, I'm really just hoping now that you've brought this up that like the Lakers lose their pick. Cause I don't want to have to deal with like finding like who they should take. At this well, you'd, be, you'd be like me where I want the Sixers to get two of these top three point guards. It's just so they get a chance to see how to hopefully one of them hits. Oh God, no, I, I don't want the Sixers to take two point guards. They they need help on the wings. Like they There need are to be- no wings. Well, I guess they could take Josh. At the top four, I mean, you have Jason Tatum and Josh Jackson. Like, yeah, uh, and I mean, Tatum could be an interesting hybrid combo with Simmons just in terms of doing that, but I don't think there's enough shooting. But one thing I want to mention in terms of the Russell fit, defensively, Fultz could be a really fun one because you could bounce the two of them between your ones and twos. And there, I loved the kind of fit concept of, of Denver's three guards with Gary Harris, Moutier, and Jamal Murray for this exact reason, that I thought all of them could defend ones and twos at varying levels of quality. And so mm-hmm. you could kind of just make it work. And with Fultz and Russell, you could probably do that as well. I mean, there are some teams now, the Blazers being an obvious one, that have talented guys at both positions offensively. But generally speaking, most teams have a a greater and a lesser of that group. And so probably put Fultz on the greater and put Russell on the lesser. Yeah, to be honest, I would probably take Jason Tatum now that I think about it if I was the Lakers, just because you 
can throw him next to Brandon Ingram and just be hyper competent at the like three and four spots with Jordan Clarkson and D'Angelo Russell in the backcourt and just have like one of those two guys take turns initiating your offense. And then you also have both Ingram and Tatum who can also officiate like initiate your offense if necessary and save Um, money for Russell Westbrook. Yeah. And save money for Russell Westbrook now. But I mean, maybe Josh Jackson's the more ideal fit there too. Maybe you want a guy with less usage because you have all those guys who can initiate offense already, already. And Josh Jackson gives you kind of that high motor FU mentality that maybe that team lacks a little bit of with the more reserved D'Angelo and Brandon Ingram in terms of like hyper competitiveness at the very least. I don't think you could call D'Angelo Russell reserved by any stretch of the imagination. No, you couldn't. And Josh Jackson is compelling in this group, not only because he's like the only high level wing, unless Diallo is in this class, but also because, you know, he is a, a, a what I would call an accessible wing in that he could work in a lot of systems. He might not be your best guy on the perimeter. Like I think if if that's where your team is, you're not really, let's say, probably going to be a conference finals team. But that means that he can be a piece that you are eventually looking to build around. And realistically, you're always looking for good wings. There isn't unless you have LeBron James, you're even then you're still looking for other good wings. Uh, Every team in the NBA could use another good wing, right? Like even the Warriors with, you know, Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson and Andre Iguodala, they still could use another really good wing just because always it's the least, uh, has the least depth of any position in the NBA right now. And that that has value to me. Like you could play another wing for 20 minutes a game, like instead of a guy like a Patrick McCaw, who we're not sure how good he is yet. Like that has value to me. (laughs) It's just so hard talking about the wing position in the NBA because it's so bad right now. Like we need more guys like Josh Jackson who can come in and probably make an impact immediately. And I think from what I remember, we talked about this before. I think you're more sold on his defensive potential, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like that guy is just a total monster in terms of like hyper competitiveness and really like getting after it. Um, Yeah, he has some over aggressiveness problems whenever he's really locked in. And occasionally he has like defensive problems in terms of being locked in. But the tools are there. Like he's a hyper athlete. Um, He is a guy who when the motor is going and it's typically always going like he he's going to really get after it on that end. I I don't really have any real reservations with Jackson being a two way wing. The other uh, so the other two guys kind of in this high end high end mix right now. I don't really draw lines, especially considering I'm not the expert here. You are. But the other two guys fit a similar bill, which is that they are combo forwards who will both play in the ACC. Jason Tatum, freshman at Duke. Jonathan Isaac, freshman at Florida State. So, yeah, like Jason Tatum is a really interesting one because every time that I see Tatum, he seems to settle into the mid-range a lot. And that makes me wonder, like, is he athletic enough to get to the rim consistently enough to like where he can be an efficient player? Or is he going to be a guy like a, like a Carmelo Anthony that's going to have to settle in the mid range a lot uh, later in his career, for instance. Um, I'm not real sure on that yet, but I will say that like every NBA scout I've talked to that has been to that like Duke combine or like Duke practices or whatever, even though they're closing practices down now, they all love Jason Tatum. Like they all think that he's going to be like one of 
you know, the two best players in this class. Um, I've gotten more universal praise for him uh, than any other prospect so far out of the people I've talked to. So Wow. Um, that, that's, that's some pretty high praise considering how much people love these point guards. Right. Like, I think that part of it, too, is like they think of the point guard position as still relatively loaded because there are all these like 25 to 30 year olds in the league that are still hyper valuable. And the wing position is so weak. Like the fact that the wing position is so weak really does play a role in having a guy like Jason Tatum uh, come into the league and, you know, in the 2017 draft at least and really provide value. I mean, anyone who can create their own shot as consistently as Tatum can and who can have defensive potential because he actually does like, again, a lot of the time care. And he seems to understand the fact that like, he's going to play both the three and the four. Those guys also have just a ton of value, I think around the league right now. And it's not too difficult to buy that Tatum would be as beloved as some of these other like hyper, you know, athletes. Like he's not, he's not a prototype right now. Like Jason Tatum is a polished scorer who can do a lot like in an NBA game right now. Like he's probably not going to be like the most efficient player in an NBA game right now, but he's going to be, you know, a guy that could probably like play in an NBA game right now for the Sixers and not look out of place, you know? He's also going to look for that reason. He's going to look really good in college. Like he's going to have these games where he's just more put together than the guys he's going against. Yeah, absolutely. He's in a great spot too, because Duke knows exactly how to utilize these guys. We've seen it the last two years with Justice Winslow and Brandon Ingram. They're going to put him at the four a decent amount and just kind of let him go to work. There aren't many NCAA fours that can guard Jason Tatum. (laughs) There might be like three. Yeah. And that's also part of the reason why I think he would ideally be a four in the NBA. But with him and Isaac, at a certain point, even if they're better at the four, even if, let's say, you know, it takes down their value by 15 percent, that still makes them better than most the most wings. Like you might have more value even as a relative term just because of the scarcity. Right. I mean, positional scarcity is just such a like incredibly difficult thing to judge. Like so many of these guys like Carmelo Anthony, like everyone's wanted him to move to the four. And yeah, that's probably his best spot. But like, who do the Knicks put at the three? Do you want to put Lance Thomas at the three and like take out one of Noah or Porzingis? Like it. Well, and even if you put Lance Thomas at the three, teams are going to be putting their best forward defender on Melo. Like the real, like there is, you have such a scarcity that you can't even get to the level where you can make these real decisions. Like, you know, there's another, there's kind of, so there's a tier, which is just like having enough good dudes, which is, which the NBA is certainly not at. But then there's another level where you're actually like forcing defenses to make complicated decisions. And like, that's really the level where this will get fun. But we might be five to 10 years from that. Yeah, I mean, you look at like the Carmelo Anthony year where they were, you know, super good and he played the four a decent amount. Like, it's easier to do that when you have guys like J.R. Smith and, you know, Chris Copeland, I think, was on that team and he was actually valuable at that stage. Um, That was Iman Shumpert being valuable as well. So, like, whenever you have valuable wings, it really opens up the rest of what you can do. And I think that it's a really under underappreciated commodity basically i think that you know everyone says like you need a great lead guard to win or you need like a great forward like big man to win i guess i think the most valuable position you can draft in an nba draft right now is wing because of the relative scarcity around the rest of the league 
Well, I mean, it's been, at least off the top of my head, it's been a little while since a team without an elite wing won a championship. I think you'd have to go to that Mavericks team. And they had some aging guys that were good. And Dirk is, of course, the anomaly of anomalies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can go further back then. I mean, I guess the Pistons still had like Rip Hamilton, who was an all-star at that stage. Sean Prince was quite good. Yeah, they like, elite, but they were they they had depth like those two guys, and and that team should have had Mello too. Yeah, which is funny, but no, I mean to get it back to like the original question of Jonathan Isaac, Isaac's more of a like traditional three four in that like he's six eleven, uh, pretty long arms. I think he has like a nine one standing reach, nine two standing reach or something. Um, you could like theoretically see him play center, like in terms of if he can put on like thirty more pounds, which dubious on his body holding 30 pounds but maybe 20 more he, he's a hyper skilled player at that size very fluid athletically pretty explosive athletically i mean you have to hope that as he continues to put on strength and weight that that can continue to develop that's kind of to me that's like the biggest thing now that gives me uncertainty in terms of projecting upside like for skinny players particularly like guys like jonathan isaac these players aren't finished products athletically yeah. like these guys add strength and add muscle mass and become more explosive. And that's what I think a team is hoping for with Jonathan Isaac. Like you hope that a guy like him uh, who does have the ability to shoot already, like he can get into the lane with his dribble drive. Uh, he like, he's a really, really good player, six foot 11. And not many guys are able to do that. Like you're talking about Kevin Durant, Paul George at that size who can like really handle the ball and really like, shoot and create Jonathan Isaac probably not on their level but especially right now but like who knows I mean Paul George went to Fresno State for a reason and uh, it took him a couple years in the NBA even to develop the way he has developed so he's the ultimate project but he is one of the highest upside projects that you can possibly have in terms of the watchability of the product, there are a few things that I would enjoy more other than, you know, more legit star players than seeing guys like Jonathan Isaac get minutes at backup five as opposed to the Jason Smiths and aging Roy Hibberts and Tarek Black for the world. Just because that versatility, it, it has so many spillover benefits to the rest of the team. Yes, absolutely. I mean... I don't remember if it was you I was talking to, but like I was super excited when I saw that like Steve Kerr was talking about giving like James Michael McAdoo minutes at the five at some point this year. I was like, yes, that could be so fun. And that's like perfect for his skill set. And it opens up the rest of the team. Like you should do that. Looney um, Mike, Looney's already got some. He'll probably get more. Yeah. Like those kind of guys, if you can play them at the five, I mean, it really opens up your team athletically. It allows you to catch the defense scrambling more, especially on second units. I mean, if you can use those guys on second units, it'd be awesome. Have I told you about like my one theory about the way the Cavs could continue to stay elite? Let's hear it. Like as LeBron, if LeBron ever starts to age, I guess we're, we're not entirely sure LeBron will ever age out of being elite. But if he does, I would like consider playing him at the five because it'd be awesome. Like, I mean, again, would, they would need enough wings to do it. But yeah, but yeah. And, and it also LeBron doesn't. Well, I mean, depending on how he ages, there is also this idea, which I've talked about more broadly. And there are actually a lot of guys in this class that really fit that. And it's more of a second unit thing than a first unit thing. But mm -hmm. if you can have a player somewhere between the two through the four, two through five, sorry, who is more athletic than his counterpart and has a higher motor, you can get somewhere between six and 10 points a game just on 
just hustle baskets. Clint Capella is a great example of this. Just like beating your dude down the floor and having enough passing, you can get easy points that way. And there will always be guys who are more or less athletic than their peers. So if you can play Jonathan Isaac at the five, he's going to smoke that guy down the court. And so it's great. I actually prefer it when it's a four, just because then you're not sacrificing some of the other stuff. But wherever you can get it, like especially now that teams are running more aggressively. And then the other thing that can do as kind of a, an ancillary benefit is that sometimes when you have players that can do that, the other team will kind of decrease their emphasis on offensive rebounding because they're getting smoked in that way. And then that makes it easier to get defensive boards. That's just, I'm trying to like process all of what you just said. And that's all really interesting. The four aspect of that is the most interesting. I don't know that I buy that it's worth like eight to 10 points a game. Like you said, uh, just beating them down the floor offensively. But I think if you combine offensive and defensive value, maybe you can get there. I mean, in terms of maybe a guy like a Capella, like setting up, always sprinting down the floor and setting up position early and not allowing his counterpart center to be able to, you know, establish himself down low. Like if he's going up against a guy like a Joel Embiid, who really has been like getting down the floor and trying to establish himself like down at the, you know, eight foot mark or so. Um, if you can stop that guy from doing that, maybe you can, you know, find the eight to 10 points of value. That's, it's that interesting. also might like, be overstating it a little bit, but that also, since you brought up Embiid, it made me think about how angry I get that Jaleel Okafor doesn't fight for position as much as he should. He yeah, could he could benefit a... so much from just planning himself. And like, there was actually a cool thing. I think it was Dwight How I saw Dwight Howard do it, where he kind of established himself too deep and then pushed himself back out. And it's like it, it's kind of counterintuitive, but also kind of intuitive. I'm I'm sure Shaq did it all the time of the idea of you know sometimes they're trying to prevent you from getting to a spot, but generally that will lead to conceding something else, and so you just turn what they're conceding into what you want in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the easiest way to establish position is to just pin your guy underneath the basket, and if you have to take a few more steps out, that's fine. But I mean, the further you get position, the easier it is for you to keep that position essentially because guys are going to continue to fight you on your back to push you out. So yeah, the, going back to the Okafor thing, I mean, that's probably the thing that bothers me most about him and probably why I'm going to be just so wildly wrong on the way that his career goes down. He had such an easy time establishing position in college that I don't think he ever learned what it was like to fight for it. And you see the ramifications of that right now. Like, his lower body strength isn't great, I would say. I mean, part of this, too, might be the fact that he's coming off of knee surgery and has to have, like, both ankles wrapped right now just because he's not, like, fully 100% yet. But uh, he looks to be skinnier, and maybe eventually that can come along. But he's still just not quite fighting for position in the way that, you know, I thought he would have ease establishing position in the NBA, but it just really hasn't happened. And... Yeah, I'm starting to get a little bit worried. Like, I wasn't real worried this offseason even. Like, uh, he averaged 17-7 and seven last year, and obviously the defensive problems were a disaster in some of his efficiency. Although, after he got a real point guard, Nish Smith, the efficiency questions really went away. I'm starting to get worried about him in a way that I wasn't as of 
four games ago. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll move on to a happier note. Uh, since while it is not specified in terms of like bylaws or anything, generally speaking, I think Real Jam Radio listeners are more NBA focused, and so something we did last year that people really liked was from your perspective, if it's somebody who's more watching college through the lens of potential NBA guys, what teams should they be looking at? When like maybe maybe on the schedule, let's say on like a Saturday morning or something, like what college teams would they would would be a good thing to catch their eye? Yeah, sure. I think that this is always a really fun thing to do. So any ACC game this year, you're going to be fine. That's just straight up. Like I have ten ACC guys in my top thirty right now. If you combine the Big Ten, Big Twelve, and or no, it's the Big Ten, SEC, and Pac twelve to put them all together, I have ten guys in those leagues combined uh, compared to the 10 guys in the top 30 that I have from the ACC alone. So that goes even without saying like the Louisville guys that I like, like Donovan Mitchell and Dang Adele and Notre Dame is VJ Beecham. And, you know, Virginia tech has an interesting guy in Zach Ladey, and even wake forest has Bryant Crawford, who I really like no matter what ACC game you turn on, unless it's Georgia tech, Boston college, uh, you're going to find a guy to watch. Syracuse has Tyler Lydon and Andrew White. Every game in that league is going to be fun to watch. The other three teams that I would say, and if this can kind of get you all around the country, because all these teams also play really good non-conference schedules, is Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky is pretty obvious. They have, I think, three guys in my top 20 in De'Aaron Fox, Bam Adebayo, and Malik Monk. They have another really interesting guy in Sasha Kalea Jones, who is maybe the best long-term prospect on that team in terms of ceiling, at least. He still has a long way to go, but he does have a very high ceiling because he's 6'11", 7'3", wingspan with like a 9'2", standing reach, and like Kawhi Leonard-sized hands. Uh, Plus, he has pretty fluid athleticism and can do a decent amount. He just needs to learn how to play basketball at this stage. They also have you know Isaiah Briscoe, who I'm not giving up on as a prospect. I think that he is shooting a little bit better early on in the preseason, it seems like. And uh, he's a bowling ball who's really tough and really physical defensively. You know, plus they have other guys like Wenyan Gabriel and, you know, Michael Mulder is a guy that I think will probably succeed in the D League at some point. Kentucky will play a really hard schedule. You will see a lot of different really good teams and you will see all of their prospects. Big 12, uh, like, so you're going to get like the Midwest country now. You'd want to watch Kansas. Kansas has Josh Jackson, like we said. They also have Devontae Graham, who uh, our friends at Draft Express have as a potential first round pick. I'm a little bit lower on him. Kansas has Sviatoslav Mikhailuk, who is really interesting, obviously. He's still younger than Josh Jackson, actually. He's still, I think, 19 and Josh Jackson uh, turns 19, I think, four months before he does. Carlton Bragg is another high-ish upside guy, although I'm a little bit less sold on him. He's like 6'9 with shortish arms, but he's really, really skilled. And if Bill Self gets him playing hard, that could be a really interesting guy. LeGerald Vick is an interesting name that uh, has really taken a step forward this offseason from all you know indications, it seems like. Kid out of Memphis, Tennessee, who... 
he wasn't really considered like a Kansas level prospect, but he has really grown. And it seems like, you know, Bill Self has found another diamond in the rough, like Frank Mason or like Devonte Graham. And Mason's another guy that uh, his toughness will kind of shine through and maybe get him some NBA looks. Landon Lucas, I think might get some NBA looks as a powerful six foot 10, six eleven center who's low usage and good defensively. And then I don't know if this guy's going to play, but Yudoka Azubuki, seven foot tall, uh, has like a seven six wingspan, and he is just massive. I don't know that he's going to play in the NBA, but he's a really interesting prospect that has to stay there for two years because he's 16. In terms of who they're going to play, the Big 12 is not necessarily as strong as the ACC, and it's probably about on the same level as the SEC and Pac-12, but it's nowhere near as, you know, bereft of teams as the Big Ten is this or bereft of prospects at least is the Big Ten is this year. And then on the West Coast, I would watch UCLA because, you know, I go to a bunch of UCLA games every year. So uh, I always enjoy the teams that they have come through and the Pac-12 schedule is going to be pretty interesting. You guys like Markel Fultz and Lowry Markinen. They also play a little bit tougher of a non-conference schedule. You know, also they have Lonzo Ball, who's one of the most interesting guys. Uh, TJ Leaf is a really interesting freshman, six foot ten, stretch four kind of kid. And Ike Anikbogu is a you know six foot nine pogo stick defensive center who is hurt right now. But uh, if he can get back before Pac-12 play, I think he's a really interesting prospect too. Also, you'll get to see the glory that is Bryce Alford's just great ego, and I mean that honestly in the best way. Like I. You know, I've talked to Bryce a few times and he just has like, you know, the best demeanor in terms of, uh, you know, the little white kid who is going to just destroy you or at least make every effort to destroy you. Plus, like I said, they're going to play a great schedule non-conference. I believe they play Kentucky. They might play Ohio State. I don't remember. Um, they play a bunch of really good teams, though. So it's going to be a really fun year out in Los Angeles for me. Yeah, I think that's a, a good balance. The ACC having such a stacked year is also really fun because Duke is so so good this year that it, it gives them more of a challenge. You know, that they're going to have yep. teams that have multiple NBA players. And then Kentucky is going to be one that I watch. I, I pretty much do every year. And even though their system doesn't perfectly replicate the NBA, there are ele- elements of it that I can actually learn something from. So I, I really do like that and then you know ucla is ucla but and maybe 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 this will be the last year for for alford at ucla so yeah you're, you're not a big steve fan uh, never right. happen probably <laughs> never will be but he can recruit though so i mean it, it does it does lead to things being interesting uh is there anybody else i mean so we talked about teams and i think that's great is there anybody else kind of maybe lower on the list who you think could be a, a riser with time in terms of teams or players or in terms of players like somebody, somebody who maybe that you think is being underappreciated or could be a, a riser with exposure or just like have a good year. Yeah. I like Donovan Mitchell at Louisville. Decent amount. He's, you know, six foot three, long arms, crazy athlete, really work on his jump shot. I wrote about him at Sporting News, wrote about Brian Crawford at Wake, but he might be a year away, to be honest, in terms of whether or not he can uh, make that next step. I'll be writing about Jonathan Motley this week uh, at Baylor. He is an interesting guy in that he's like six foot nine center who can step away a little bit and shoot, but 
He's like got like a nine three standing reach. He moves really well laterally. He could be like a potential first round pick. Mikhail Bridges at Villanova is really interesting, and Eric Pascal is another guy uh, that's like Pascal is like a six foot six like freight train. He was he looked like LeBron at times in the Atlantic Ten when he played for Fordham. He's transferred to Villanova. This will be his sophomore year. He's a third year sophomore. Um, I I don't know exactly how it's going to work. But he's a good player that I think could rise up the board. Uh, another guy that I really like is Charles Cook at Dayton. I'll write about him at some point. Uh, he is a six foot five, three and D wing with like a seven foot wingspan, who is a really good athlete who uh, is not going to like, you know, go crazy or anything in terms of, you know, I guess like creating offense and he'll average like 15 points a game, but a lot of it's going to be on different shooting things or getting out in transition and, you know, creating turnovers. But I do like him a decent amount beyond them. I'd like the European class a lot too. I should say that, um, I'm a little bit higher on guys like Bariza Simonich, who's not getting a ton of minutes for Red Star, but uh, you know maybe he ends up being more of a 2018 guy. I mentioned uh, Arnoldis Kolboka, who is a you know high upside six foot eight wing who can attack the rim and really shoot from outside. There are a few other names that I do really like out of that international class. Plus, there's always Terrence Ferguson, uh, who is going to be. Uh, in Australia until March, and then he'll probably come back and enter the NBA draft, who I, I would imagine he'll be a first-round pick. Um, but, but beyond those guys, I mean, it, it's hard. I, I would have told you that I liked Dylan Brooks, but he has, has this like foot injury now that terrifies me long-term for his season, at least. So this draft, I will say this, the top like 20 picks or so are really strong, like among the strongest we've seen in an NBA draft for a while. But it falls off right now pretty quickly. And, you know, I kind of thought that last year's draft wasn't super deep at the first. Like, I thought it was a pretty average depth draft early on. And it ended up turning into just like a crazy deep draft where you've seen now like 15 undrafted guys make the NBA on opening night rosters. But this draft does not seem to me, at least, to be as deep as last year's draft. And I think that there will be guys who step up. There's no doubt about that. But... Right now, I'm not super, super excited about a lot of guys. Yeah, th- that seems fair from from what I know about it. And also, there are different vari- variables in terms of strength. I mean, you can think about it in terms of, st- I think, star starters and then NBA players. You know, like, so this might be more of a class that's better in terms of starters and less in terms of NBA players. But I wanted to end this on a very abstract question, but I think it's one that will interest you, which is just an instinct, because I'm not even going to ask you to pick who the guy is. But do do you feel that this is a year where the guy who looks like the best player in the country ends up going number one in the draft? (laughs) Maybe. I mean, if it's, yeah, I think that that's possible because Markel Fultz is going to be really good. Uh, Jason Tatum is going to be really good. Josh Jackson is going to be really good. Yeah, I would say that that's possible because like you look around the college seniors, aren't like great, right? Like you have Ivan Rabs is a sophomore. I guess I should say returnees maybe. Like Ivan Rabs is a sophomore. You know, he's maybe going to average like 16 and 10 this year, but he's not going to be like a crazy, you know, elite first team All-American probably. OG Ananobi is more of a role player. Tyler Lydon, you know, maybe could take that next level leap, but you know, probably not. Thomas Bryant's more of like a role player right now because he's so young. Maybe, maybe Grayson Allen is the 
guy who changes that. Like if Grayson Allen is the best player in the country, Grayson's not going to go number one. But, you know, beyond Grayson, I don't really see a whole lot in terms of like potential best player in the country going like 10th like Doug McDermott did. You know, yeah, I think this year is definitely more suited to it just because yeah. it's it's more open. And also some of those players, Jason Tatum being the most obvious are on teams that could potentially be good. So, you know, like if Tatum can feel being the best player on Duke into, you know, maybe they're a one seed and then that could that could parlay into being the number one pick. And, you know, the, that there isn't an Adam Morrison, there isn't a J.J. Redick just clearly offhand. And I hadn't really thought about this too much, but it does seem like, at least as of now, there will be kind of an interesting battle to see who the first upperclassmen taken in the draft will be because they're all in kind of that late first round morass. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, like Graham, I would say- and J- Grayson Allen, and I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting more than a few guys. A Blossom game, maybe? Yeah, I would say Grayson is my pick for that. Um, I, I think he will be the first upperclassman taken. I hope it's I mean, V. I hope it's V, but it probably will be Grayson. Do, can we count V as an upperclassman? I mean, hey, he, he counts. he's legitimately four years younger than Blossom game. <laughs> Yeah, it it is really weird, and you get into that. I mean, like Svee being younger than his teammate, his teammate Josh Jackson, who's going to be a freshman. And oh, can we also do the short list of guys that are younger than Josh Jackson who are already in the NBA? Yes, I think that you found this before. Go ahead. I did. So he has the exact same birthday, birthday, birth year as Diamond Stone. Then the other guys already in the NBA who are younger are Jamal Murray, Marquise Chris, Brandon Ingram, Dragon Bender, and maybe Thonmaker. Um. Maybe. Maybe. I think maybe is maybe the best way to put that. Um, well, I mean, that does put it. I, I and, and of course, the note that Jackson hasn't even been drafted yet. So, I mean, that while that might not sound like a lot now, remember, those guys are going to have a full year of NBA experience by then. And it's it is a very different thing. I mean, I think back to Shabazz Muhammad. And yeah, he looked a lot better because he was a year older than a lot of his peers. Yeah. And I mean, Josh Jackson will look good this year. I have no doubt that Josh Jackson's going to look awesome this year at Kansas. He's kind of the perfect wing for Bill Self. Like Bill Self gets kind of this bum rap for uh, not showcasing prospects. But Josh that's, Jackson, more, that's more of a big thing, though, right? Because he doesn't really showcase uh, big men. I mean, you, you look at what happened with Andrew Wiggins, too. Like Wiggins got the same level of criticism as many of the bigs. Right. That's true. I'm, I think of it more with guys like T-Rob and, and Joel Embiid and um, and maybe even Cliff to a degree. Yeah, I mean, he definitely got it with Cliff. Wayne Selden as well. Like people forget that Selden was like a five star prospect. Markeith Morris wasn't like anything near what he is in the NBA in terms of like shooting and, uh, you know, being a guy that you can legitimately run offense through at certain points like Marcus was the guy who did that at Kansas you know yeah like there there are a bunch of different guys that you can look at that you know have been like that at Kansas but Josh Jackson is the prototypical wing for what Bill Self wants to do he's going to run the floor a lot he's going to play off ball really well really high basketball IQ and he's always going to give like pretty much 100% effort so uh, I really like uh, Josh Jackson there I think he's going to be awesome trying to think of like there's anything else we need to talk about. Like, you know, how are you doing, Danny? Like, how is how is Golden State for you right now? They're interesting. And that isn't something you expect from a team that won 73 games last year. I mean, there there's uncertainty figuring out what's going on with their old big men and then whether they're going to have the guts to try out their young big men. You know, like that that's a, a big question. And they have a lot of time 
to figure all of this out. But I think the Warriors are uh, actually kind of to tie this back to the draft. They're a great example of what good teams should do late in the first round of just roll the dice of talented guys because it's so much more important if you can get that hit even if it's one out of two one out of three yeah because you need you need that possibility because it's one of the only ways you can get significantly better yeah i agree with that 100 percent. speaking of you know rookies and young guys are there any rookies that have really impressed you so far hmm I mean, it is it is a little early. Let me let me give me. Uh, I would say that Jalen Brown has been better than I anticipated early. Yeah, I haven't watched much of the Celtics yet, but what I've seen, I've really liked. I'd also say Wade Baldwin. Yes, Baldwin, especially defensively, has been much better than I expected, which is a really encouraging thing when you think he's a young guy. And the idea that he can maybe defend multiple positions, because the whole issue of is he a point guard or not, gets resolved if he can defend twos. Yeah, I mean, we should probably just like call the rookie of the year race. Like it's going to be Embiid. Like he's going to win as long as he plays like fifty games. I think uh, there's just no one else who's going to even come close to averaging like. What he's probably going to be like a seventeen and ten guy this year, just because. Well, of especially if they end up going with the approach of sitting him for games and then playing him more minutes in the other games, which is kind of what it looks like they're telegraphing with the idea of kind of doing the stagger sit with him and Okafor while they're both kind of making their way back from their various injuries. Yeah. And as you know, I think it'll make sense to people, but the idea of per game stats still have value. You know, most people don't know how many points a guy scored in a season, but they definitely will know how many they scored per game. Yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, Chris has looked more together than I expected. Marquis Chris. Yes, I would agree with that. I like um, him. McCaws looks good. Um, Sabonis is closer. I mean, I still don't love him long term, but at least he's shown a higher level of capability. Like maybe he can be a, a solid rotation player in a way that I doubted. And so he deserves credit for that. Kind of same thing with Pirtle, though I think he has more to figure out. Yeah, I think Pirtle, like I, I would have said like Pirtle's a lot closer to contributing than Chris before the draft. But like, yeah, I mean... Chris's athleticism is really playing well, it seems like, and he's rebounding a lot better. Uh, he's finishing reasonably well around the rim. Uh, he still doesn't have the shot down from what I've seen. He's taken a few of them, but he looks a lot better than I anticipated early. I thought he would be lost early. And Siakam has looked... That was the other one I was going to mention. Valuable. Yeah, he plays defense. He actually cares. Yeah, he's like the perfect example of what we were talking about earlier about like how you can just get like six points or eight points a game from playing harder than someone. Yeah. And if you can do that while bringing defensive value, you can really help a team. And, you know, Toronto, as it turns out, you know, we might not have expected that considering they their biggest free agent addition was Jared Sollinger, but they need it. They need that help. Yeah. And then the last guy is Tyler Eulis. I really oh, like Yeah. We both love him. Yeah, like Eulis, they he, they need to like play him because they need to trade one of their point guards because they just don't need them. And it's, it, I mean, you can wait for there to be a scarcity, but Eulis can step in and be a backup one for them, no problem. Yeah, like the the problem would, that they run into is that both of those point guards want to get points for themselves, like above all. I mean, Brandon Knight can pass a little bit. Eric Bledsoe can pass a little bit, but they're both like me first point guards. And Eulis is like the exact opposite. And that offense just runs so much smoother when he's in the game. Do you mean the residual anger that I have that Eric Bledsoe and James Harden didn't get to be teammates, even though that was possible in Oklahoma City? Oh, yeah, because of the good old BJ Mullins deal. Like that would have been. Can you imagine if their guard rotation would have been Russ, Harden, 
Bledsoe and, and who Wyman. cares? No, I had that. The, the fourth guy was awesome too. Why well, can't I remember who it was? Oh, uh, maybe it's just those three. Anyway, but like, I mean, it's uh, I have uh, yeah. Actually, the piece I have on the Harden trade will probably be out by the time this gets published. But I think about that every once in a while. It's just like those kind of small moves. And yeah, we didn't know what Bledsoe would be at that time, of course. But you know, we knew what Mullins would be at that time with Oklahoma City. We know what we. It's so much easier to embrace what might have been because we already know how good they were. Yeah. No, absolutely. The fact that they could have been better is haunting. No, it is. I mean, that's going to go down for me as like maybe the biggest what if of my last like decade of watching the NBA. And it's it's such a weird way for a team to not succeed. Like, you know, there have been, you know, like you can think about tragedies of like player person, like player tragedies of like whether you want to even say somebody like Len Bias or, you know, like anything like that. It's super weird to see a team never reach their potential. And it just kind of happening. You know, some of it was injuries. Some of it was a few kind of short sighted bad trades like there isn't a parallel that I know of in sports for the way that they didn't succeed. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And I, it, they did so much right early on in Sam Presti's tenure. And then like, it ended up being that they did so much wrong, but so much of what they did that ended up being wrong had so many other like potential values, like so many other potential results that like, I can't even say necessarily that like they were, exceedingly poor decision-making processes like the Harden deal probably was oh it was but beyond that like everything else that they've done like I look at it and I'm just like except for taking Josh Eustis (laughs) well yeah but like I'm trying to go back to that what was that the 2014 draft I think that was 2014 like they could have had what I guess Nurkic no sorry Jokic they could have had Jokic, but I don't know that anyone was taking Jokic in the first round. Um, yeah, I mean, then you get it. Yeah, and it's it's also hard. I mean, while yeah. people were high on him, then you you get into kind of a lot a lot of that. But what I, what I was just thinking of, and this, I mean, this the guy gets, is probably KJ McDaniel's. Like, yeah, it, this gets it, into kind of a not a dark place, but a weird thought is like if somehow you could convince somebody that you didn't know the future, and you could go back to that Oklahoma City Miami finals and bet somebody that Oklahoma City in that like Oklahoma City would never make the NBA finals again like what kind of odds you could have gotten I feel like you could have gotten Pretty that high. I feel like you could have gotten at least 100 maybe even up to like 500 to 1 I don't know if it's that high but to not make to even make the finals I'm not talking about like winning a title just the idea of yeah. never making the finals again Yeah I mean we knew San. I guess that that would, that point, like we thought, San Antonio was kind of falling a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they just lost four straight to the Thunder. Yeah, they I looked mean, old. Yeah, that's possible. And that's, the Warriors were nothing. That's right, bef- is that right before the Chris Paul trade or right after? Let's see. So that was LeBron's second year in Cleveland. I think that was right after, but I'm admittedly not sure. Yeah, like. You could have gotten great odds. That's yeah, true. I mean, just I mean, just with the just with the idea, and also you you. I mean, at that point, Harden hadn't been traded. You had this. You had the idea that they could have retained all those guys for another four years. Like they had that. You know, they. I think at that point, Durant had already been extended. I think Westbrook may have already been extended as well. Yeah, he was. And then I think Ibaka got his extension that summer. So it's like, yeah, they had all these guys. None of them took the qualifying offer or anything crazy like that. Yeah, it's. It's tough. And, and I like, it's, it's weird personally kind of with my kind of place in all this, but I, I, I'm just sad about it as a basketball fan, you know, that it, that it never happened because they were 
so intriguing and so good and different in a way that nobody else could replicate. And now it's yeah. done. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe this Oklahoma City team with Russ and total FU mode wins 50 games this year. But like, that's probably their ceiling at this stage, winning 50 games and probably going out in the second round, right? I think that might even be rosier than, I mean, that that could be like, uh, you could call that a reasonable best case. I think that would be fair. Yeah, like ceiling is... Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. Like, that's and probably as, as they they and the Bulls test out the theory of how little shooting can you have and still be a competitive basketball team. The Bulls have been weird this year, man. Like they've also played not good teams, which is a very important part of this that people aren't considering. Is that not only that, but I believe at least one of their opponents was on the tail end of a back to back. I, I think yeah, this a lot of it, fool's gold, and it was the only decent opponent they played this year. Boston was on the back to back. Yeah, and Boston, Boston back to back traveling. I believe traveling west, and um, just they look, they look kind of dead. And without uh, Smart and Olenek. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, I- I'm not saying that the Bulls are like gonna you know, win 50 games, but it looks like less of a disaster than I thought it would. Yeah, which is great. You know, like that's that's kind of the idea of. So for them, you know, and this is kind of the the benchmark for a lot of these teams is like I thought the bigger problem for them was going to be defensive and that still will probably rear its head later in the season I mean they don't get to play the Nets every night but they you know like if you can get enough stops they have good transition talent the question was always are they going to get enough stops to run in transition yeah yeah I mean I'm not certain on that yet and I'm not certain on you know this offense is going to continue to function well if Dwayne Wade stops making three-pointers it probably won't keep functioning well if he stops making threes. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this goes. I have no idea how it will end, but they don't look like as big of disasters, what I'm going to say. Like, they don't look awful. And considering the rampant uncertainty around that team long term, you know, having a having a kind of better than expected season creates some other challenges for their front office. I mean, like them having a really good season, them having a really bad season, those have challenges too, but kind of being in the middle might even be weirder because so many of their players are free agents. Yeah. Like, Oh God, if they retain Rajon Rondo on like a three year, $65 million contract, that would be the funniest possible outcome. Uh, I, 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 it'd be funny in some ways. It'd be sad in more ways. (laughs) Rondo Rondo is this fascinating player in the scope of everything because he does certain things well, but it feels like he's just roaming. He's just roaming the NBA countryside, finding places until they kick him out. He's roaming the NBA countryside until he can accrue enough seasons to break uh, John Stockton's assist record. Yeah, eventually he'll just find a place as like the like 20 minutes a game on the Sixers until they find their next point guard. And he'll just every possession will just go to him and then he'll try to make the pass that sets it up just to keep keep pushing out Stockton. Just keep going, man. Just yeah. gotta keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how like how many seasons he would have to play to do that. I think like, he'd have he to is... play until he was like 50. Oh, God. Yeah, he's not even. Well, because I mean, that's there. that's the thing that people lose. So the there is this issue that happens when people discuss historical figures that, you know, sometimes the players who were really good for a long time get overrated. Like, I think Carl Malone is this way. Like, I think Carl Malone's greatness is overstated. But for guys who held on a long time, like Kareem and like Stockton, 
I think their reputation is actually to a degree hurt by it because it was so long since they were in their primes that even though their post-prime was better than almost everybody's, it still does take away a little bit from how good they were at their best. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Someone brought up... Like, you I and I probably Adi- don't remember Prime Stockton. Like, he was kind of before us. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. I think Adi Joseph brought up, like, who is going to be this generation's Jeff Hornacek? Because, like, Jeff Hornacek, you know, was like a 20-point-a-game guy for the Suns for, you know quite a few years but everyone remembers him as this like fourth scorer on the jazz instead of what he was at his peak which was like a borderline all-star shooting guard um that could be joe johnson yeah it really could be joe johnson although there's already been some discussion about people like talking about joe johnson as being kind of a joke and i mean i do use the seven-time all-star thing as kind of a bit but that's more just because i hate eastern conference all-star stuff right now but joe johnson in his prime was quite good yeah joe johnson was like I, I'm not saying Joe Johnson's going to be a Hall of Famer, but like oh, he's he, on probably, next... he probably will be, and some of us will have strong opinions on that. See, I won't even have like a strong opinion on that. I'll just be like, I get it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, also, he probably I doesn't deserve it. A, like, but I'll start caring about the Basketball Hall of Fame when they make an NBA Hall of Fame because it's just so hard now with the idea of contributors and everything else. You know, it's like because because you get into the guys who really put in a lot in college and like if that factors in, then we're not comparing apples to apples. No, we're not comparing apples to apples. But like Christian Leitner isn't in the Hall of Fame either, you know. Well, he's pretty much all college. And and of course, his massive impact. He is in the Hall of Fame, but it's only as a member of the Dream Team. Yeah, I mean, that's he's not. A <laughs> I Hall wonder of if fan. they should just like not include his picture. Just like everyone else is in for the Dream Team and not Christian. Yeah, just like find a way to, you know, make him a different person. Yeah, uh, that would be yeah. Just make it Isaiah, and then just like brainwash Isaiah into thinking, oh yeah, we let you on the team. That whole thing didn't happen. That's totally the way that would work. Yes. <laughs> and then and then you can run the Knicks again if you agree to it. <laughs> I think we found the solution. Yes, this this is it. This is right here. Uh, you know, if you agree to. You know, just, you know, let us let us forget that Christian Leitner was ever on the dream team. Uh, You can become the Sacramento Kings general manager. No, I think it has to be the Knicks. Oh, man, you don't you don't want to imagine the hilarity that would happen if it was him and Vivek. Oh, that's true. That might even be more fun. (laughs) Oh, I I, that that. Well, and the idea of him potentially being the one that handles like Boogie Cousins as a potential trade prospect. Yeah. Oh, man. You know how angry Boogie Cousins would be when he was traded for like mindaugas kuzminskis and willie hernan gomez yeah i was gonna say jerome james but he's retired <laughs> <laughs> oh my god god if, if the king yeah, i was just thinking about because uh, i don't know if it was with you that i had floated the idea of like that one of the most logical trade destinations for jaleel okafor was the kings if they trade demarcus cousins i was like how it'd be so great if somehow by removing demarcus cousins they created an even more egregious center log jam <laughs> It's totally possible. They're playing better this year, and I'm really happy for them. But holy well, as, crap. as long as we never get Nick Papa Giorgio on the floor, I think that that is their safest outcome. He's looking a little bit because I, I, I went, I covered one of their games. He looks a little bit more svelte, which is good. But yeah, it's going to take him. He's two years away from being at least a year away. <laughs> I mean, what are what are we excited about with Papa this here? Well, I mean, he he's going to be spectacular summer league fodder for years and maybe reno bighorn's d-league fodder is he gonna he's gonna foul out of a d-league game next year like that's going to happen yeah i i feel pretty comfortable that that's going and to i'm happen. gonna be sitting next to you and we're gonna be laughing yes 
I mean, I still ha- I still get like you know Seth and Nate talking about how how exuberant we all were when Tarek Black fouled out of a summer league game. Granted, he also did in like eighteen minutes, which made it so much better. Oh, th- that one was ridiculous. But even like Thon Maker, you and I were so excited. We were sitting next to each other. Thon Maker, yeah, as, as Ben Golliver thought we were idiots and were like, "No, this is amazing." Yes, like do you know how hard it is to get ten fouls in twenty eight minutes of basketball? <laughs> Yeah, especially oh. in several league when the drivers aren't generally that talented. You know, it's not like it's not like you have Eric Bledsoe or, you know, Kyrie Irving cutting to the lane. It's usually more of like the Fred Van Vliet's of the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Nothing against <laughs> Fred Van Vliet. Thrilled he made the Raptors, but point taken. Yes, we, we love Fred Van Vliet, but man, Thon. Oh, Thon. Oh, Thon. Well, no better way to end it than that. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely, Danny. Anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at many outlets, including the Sporting News, which I'm really happy about. You can read his draft analysis there and then his other work other places. And you can and should also follow him on Twitter at Sam Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Really happy to, to have him on and to talk with Sam. And as he talked about on the show, we, we discuss things all the time. And so to be able to put that down as a show was fun and how we went into some other topics and kind of got into some broader issues because once the season actually starts when we do draft stuff we'll be more in the nitty-gritty of, of different guys and who's doing well who isn't everything like that so to do some big picture stuff in terms of where the league is going and where these young guys are something I always enjoy and for those of you who have a strong opinion on how often I should do draft stuff as a part of Real Jam Radio please do let me know. That is something that is important to me. So you can reach out at Daniel LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me, NBA at gmail.com. Really do appreciate it. And, th- you know, that input is important. Going to start really talking NBA in the next episode. already have a guest lined up, but per Real GM Radio tradition, I will not say who it is until the episode is recorded. But very happy about that. So that the plan on that is to have it come out on Friday of next week, but I'm not completely sure when it'll be edited and all that kind of stuff. So we'll have to see. But I appreciate everybody for their for reaching out and their support. If you want to support the show, you can also subscribe, download every episode, leave a rating, leave a review. And also a great thing you can do is check out Audible. So you go to www.audible.com slash try now, get a free audiobook, and you get a free trial. And so you can see if you like it. I'm a big fan of their product from bef- long before this. So it, it's great to, to have them on as a sponsor. Also something you can do, I'm really happy to be a part of the CLNS radio family. It has been a great thing for Real Jam Radio. And they have an awesome app. So you can go to CLNS Radio, their app, and whatever app store you have. And you can listen to this show and many others, and it could be a way to connect with some of the other shows that CLNS puts out there, especially if you are in the greater New England area because they do a lot of great material in the Celtics, but far from just that. So you, you can check out all those shows as well. Going to have some good content coming out for those of you who haven't read it. I wrote a piece for the Sporting News on James Harden's uh, just what, what could have happened with that trade. And it was an angle, actually, I thought of a few years ago and then completely forgot about until Durant signed. So it was a piece that I actually originally wanted to write in July of 2014, forgot, wrote it now. And it, it provides a little bit of, of, light, of understanding of how kind of teams make these decisions. And the, the premise of it is that waiting a year and a half like they could have to trade Harden, the Thunder would have learned a lot about where 
the Revenue League revenues were going, where the cap was going, where the CBA was going, and so it would have been different. So you can check that out. Tons of Warriors material on The Athletic. Dunked On is now, you know, in its more daily format and doing 15 and 60s that are coming out, you know, Sunday night, Monday morning, depending on when you listen, and then, of course, the rest of the week. So it's been a lot of fun. Going to have some, hopefully have some even new stuff in there. Going to work on the CBA Encyclopedia for Real Jam and lots more. So the season is really getting in full swing. Been great to watch a lot of games and to really learn some stuff about some of these teams and watch competitive basketball. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.